0: Today's scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 17 through 44. You can follow along in your worship guide or in your Bibles. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and is given to us in love. Good
1: morning. Today we are uh, finishing up our sermon series called Friends of Jesus. And in this series we've looked at all uh, a lot of different interactions in the Gospels between Jesus... And others, and we've looked at different things that we can glean and learn from the character of Jesus Christ in those interactions. So we've looked at um, the way that he encountered the despised and the outcast, the enemy, the condemned, the doubting, and the hurting. And this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' interaction with two women of faith um, whom he loved and loved dearly, who were sisters of of Lazarus, who he also loved dearly, um, and who had just died. And these women were were in need, and what we're going to see is that Jesus ministers to them. And also, in our own moments of need, Jesus ministers to us as well. Um, My my wife, Andrea, is 50% Greek, Uh, and one of the coolest things about marrying into her family is that I've gotten to really know and experience uh, Greek culture some, uh, so much so that when we got married, we wanted to incorporate some Greek elements into our wedding. We called it uh, our big, fat, southern Greek wedding. And um, one of the things that I've really admired about uh, Greek culture is the food. Um, it's incredible. And Andrea's grandmother, her yaya, is one of the best cooks uh, I've ever... I mean, the Greek food that she makes is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And we wanted to incorporate some of that into our wedding. So Andrea's favorite Greek food is spanakopita, which is a spinach pastry um, that is wonderful. And so we wanted that in our wedding. Well, unfortunately, our uh, venue has an exclusive catering kind of agreement with uh, a very highly regarded chef in Charleston. And you can't bring your own food. So we asked him, will you make Yaya spanakopita for us? For our wedding. Because we want it in it. And he agreed to do that. The problem was is that Yaya doesn't have a recipe. She does it just all on her own. So to get the recipe, Andrea had to go into the kitchen with Yaya. Yaya made spanakopita. And Andrea wrote down every single thing that she did. Brought it to the chef. For, the, you know, for him to make. The day of the tasting comes. Which is when you taste all the food to decide what do you want in your wedding. And um, Yaya came to the tasting. And... I'll never forget when he brought out the Spanakopita. Uh, This is a, you know, this was a very, the Charleston chefs, they're very, you know, um, not arrogant, they're very confident in what they do because it's very hard to be a chef in Charleston. But man, this guy, when he brought out the Spanakopita, he was like cowering (laughs) and sheepish. And he comes to Yaya and he says, Yaya, this will not happen on the day of the wedding but i forgot the dill i forgot the dill in this so i put a little sprig on top but it's there and she looked at him square in the eye and she said the dill is the most important piece in the entire recipe and she took one bite of that and i might be making this up and i you know this was a long time ago so i'm probably am making this up i swear she spit it out like i swear she took one bite and put her ma- napkin over her mouth and spit it out So she stressed, what do we do? She says, that man is not making my spanakopita for your wedding. So this is what she did. She was in a time of dire need. What do we do? How do we bring Greek kind of elements into our wedding? So this is what they decided. She said, I'm going to make baklava. And now Yahya's baklava is incredible. But since they couldn't do it for the meal, they could only do it for the party favors. So she realized she had to make around 400 pieces of baklava. So she calls her sister, Aunt Effie, lives in California, and Effie says, I'm coming. Four days before the wedding, Aunt Effie flies all the way to Charleston, and for four straight days, they made 400 pieces of baklava for our wedding favors for after the wedding. Now, I love this story because, for a couple of reasons, but for one of the main reasons that Yaya was in need, she was like, we have to do this right And Aunt Effie was like, I'm there. I'm coming. I see your need. I'm going to be there. But I also, uh, what I love about this story is this that chef missed something really important, he missed the dill. And whenever we talk about this Lazarus story, Often I feel like Lazarus being raised from the dead is the baklava in a lot of ways. It's really cool. It's the compelling part. Jesus raises him from the dead. It's even maybe um, the most climactic part of this story. But if we miss Jesus' interaction with Mary and Martha, we'll miss the deal. We'll miss maybe the most important part of this story. These two women also seen in Luke, have been characterized and mischaracterized in a lot of ways, often even um, in derogatory ways. Even in the most charitable descriptions, Mary has been portrayed as needy at worst and over-emotional at best. Martha has been seen as uncaring at worst and then busy to the point of disengagement at best. But this passage in John focuses on these two women in a different ways. If Lazarus is the object of this story, Mary, uh, Mary and Martha are the subjects of this story. They're the driving force. They're the main point. And their need and their faith is at the forefront of this story. The way that Jesus engages with them, speaks to them, cares for them, and ministers, ministers to them in their need is instructive for us. Jesus treats these women as to who they are. He treats them as individual, strong women in their own way. And he ministers to their need according to their personalities and their strengths. It's easy to look at this passage and only focus on Lazarus. But today, we are going to look at his interaction first with Mary and Martha and what we can learn here. Mary is not an over and emotional and needy woman who Jesus coddles. No, she's a woman who's grieving over the loss of her brother and who was in need for someone to enter into her grief with her, to weep with her as she processes this loss. Martha is not portrayed as a busy and uncaring woman that needs correcting, but rather she's portrayed as a woman who was rationally upset, angry at the loss of her brother, and she needed someone to minister minister to her by sharing with her what was true about this situation. See, he Jesus ministers to these women of faith in a way that was caring, loving, and empowering. Treats them as people who were deserving of that care, love, and empowerment. This is so instructive for us. Because we are reminded, too, that Jesus cares for, loves us, and ministers to us according to our need. And our personalities, and our strengths. Each of us are in need this morning. Some of you are in financial need. You don't know how you're going to survive financially to the end of this month. Some of you are in physical need, are suffering from sickness, pain, or physical hurt. Some of you are in spiritual need. You feel like your sin is too great. The things you have done have distanced you so far from God and from others that there's no turning back. Some of you are in emotional need, wrecked by anxiety and depression, feeling like every day is a struggle. Some of you have suffered loss, and the sadness that loss is weighing down on you, causing you to be in need. But here's the hope of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ sees our need and he ministers to us in it. Like he does with Mary and Martha, he ministers to us according to our great need of him. And we know this because he is the resurrection and the life. He did come and live and died and rose again for us. So this morning, we're going to see that three ways that Jesus ministers to us in our need. First, Jesus gives us a ministry of truth, second, Jesus gives us a ministry of tears. And third, Jesus gives us a ministry of life. Let me pray for us before we get into this. Father, um, each of us in some way are in need this morning. Speak to not just our heads, but to our hearts. Father, remind us of um, who you are and what you've come to do. God, thank you for your great love and compassion for us. As we get into this passage, God, we just pray that you go before us and that your Holy Spirit opens our hearts and our eyes to your truth, and your goodness, and your grace. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Jesus gives us a ministry of truth, and uh, this brings us to the passage. This passage is the longest narrative story in all of John, other than the passion passion narrative, which is coming up in a few chapters. And this is purposeful. Uh, The reason it's long is for a couple different reasons. First, uh, it is the bookend of Jesus' ministry uh, of teaching and miracles and signs. His ministry started all the way back in John 2, where he turned water into wine, and now ends with turning a man from death to life. And this passage is long because it is so incredibly, incredibly important for showing us who Jesus is and what he came to do while on earth. It's not just the bookend of his ministry and teachings, uh, but it's also the climax and culmination of all of his teaching and signs. And though this story is about the raising of Lazarus, uh, it's actually so much more, as we mentioned, about his interaction with Mary and Martha. And the first thing we learn about them is actually in verse 5, which we didn't read, uh, but it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. These people were beloved by Jesus, almost so much so that he counted them as his family. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick and dying, he, he went to Bethany to come and see him. And mourn and be with the family. And verses 17 to 19 tell us that many people were already there. They were mourning him already. Um, They were rallying around the family and community. And then we get to the crux of the interaction with Jesus and Martha in verse 20. It says, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And this this statement uh, is, is fascinating. It shows a level of understanding, at least in part, by Martha, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. What's even more fascinating, though, is that a few verses later, Mary says the exact verbatim, the exact same sentence to Jesus. Literally, the words, the same words. And yet, Jesus' response to Mary is completely and utterly different than his response to Martha. Where Martha needed tears, we're going to see that, uh, where Mary needed tears, we're going to see that Martha needed something very, very different. And in verse 23, Jesus responds to her. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Martha, though though definitely questioning Jesus here, was not doing it in in a cold or lifeless way. She was grieving. She was in pain. She was in need. So she addressed Jesus intensely, but with hope. And when Jesus told her that Lazarus would rise again, Mary replied to him that she knew this. Um, This was a Jewish understanding of a bodily resurrection of all humankind at the end of all things. Um, So she knew in part, kind of The truth. And Jesus met her in that place. And he revealed to her the whole truth. And one of the most intense statements of the gospel in all of John. A self-revelatory statement of his deity. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, what Martha thought would happen one day, maybe um, kind of in an abstract construct, Jesus is telling her it could happen today. This I am statement by Jesus is a powerful demonstration of who he is. He's not just saying that he is Yahweh by using the divine name, but he's saying that he has command over life, over death, and over resurrection. Jesus is saying that the resurrection is no longer an idea. It's a person. He's giving her the truth that she hoped for. And even more, it was a truth that she needed to hear. That though one dies, he will surely live in Christ Jesus. Eternally through faith in him. And when asked if she believes this, she responds to this truth with the the real and whole truth. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. (laughs) I know that it could seem that in her grief, as we read this passage, and in her sadness, that Mar- Martha really comes at Jesus hot, you know, almost accusatorily, saying, "You could have saved him. Where were you?" And it could seem that Jesus shuts her down. "Don't question me. I'm the resurrection and life. I'm God." But I, I don't think that's how this text reads. I think that Martha, ever the strong and intellectual and independent woman that she was, wanted answers for her grief. She needed to hear what was true in that moment. And for us, for each of us in our times of need, sometimes that's the same. Sometimes the best thing that we can give someone who is in need, who is in trouble, or who is going through darkness is to remind them of what is true. But here's a crucial thing for us not to miss, and we, we can miss this, and I feel like I miss this often. It has to be done out of love. Jesus reminded Martha the truth, not for his own sake, but for hers. There are some people who love to speak the truth. They are truth-tellers. And as God's people, we desperately need them. And actually, for the sake of the world, we desperately need truth-tellers. They play an important, incredibly important role in our society and in our body as well. But I fear that we have in our polarized 21st century society have lost the ability to speak truth and love. We don't even have a framework. We don't even know have words for it anymore, what that looks like. There are people who love to tell people what is true but are doing it to distance themselves from others. To make themselves feel better or more powerful. And speaking truth in this manner induces shame rather than encouragement. It creates distance rather than closeness. And this is is heartbreaking. Because truth telling today is so important. But it's often done in a condemning, forceful, or dismissive way. And what I don't want us to hear is that a ministry of truth, I don't want it to be misconstrued to speaking harshly towards others without fear of repercussion. But this passage started out with Jesus saying that he loved Mary and Martha. That he wanted what was best for them. He wanted to encourage rather than shame. He wanted to create closeness in her need, not distance. He shows us that there's a difference between reminding someone what is true rather than harshly giving them the cold, hard truth. There's a way to remind someone what is true that's not, that is caring and loving, and there's a way to deliver truth to someone that is hurtful and shaming. His ministry of truth to her was a gift rather than a punishment, a word of encouragement, not a bludgeon of harshness. One of the um, greatest gifts that I received when I was in seminary was I was in a process group with about eight other guys that were going to be future ministers. Um, And for three years, we spent time together. We worked through our stories. We worked through our brokenness together under a counselor. um, And I felt so close and loved to by those men And I'll never forget uh, how instructive some of those times were for me. And there was this one time where one of our brothers was talking about a sin issue and struggle that he was going through. And he was admitting it to us. He he had been struggling with it for a time. And we'd been together for so long, but he felt shameful about it and wouldn't tell us. And he finally confesses to us before us. And um, our counselor asked him and he says, what lies are you telling yourself in this moment that we are feeling about you or receiving from you? And he looks at us with tears in his eyes and he says, I feel like I'm worthless. And I'll never forget our counselor, almost in my, my, in my memory, again, which obviously my memory is all over the place, but um, almost grabs him by the shoulders in front of all of us and he looks him in the eyes and he says never say that about yourself can you ever imagine Jesus Christ looking at you you're a good and loving father in heaven and his son looking at you and calling you worthless he would never and we would never either we love you and it was such a illustration to me of Telling the truth, reminding him of what is true in love. That his sin was never too big for Jesus to carry. The grace of Jesus Christ was never too little for his sin and his shame. His love was always more. Where do you need to be reminded what is true of you this morning? Some of you may be here and have begun to doubt the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ... How can you be reminded that he didn't leave you in your sin and brokenness, but actually got into it, came and lived so that you could find life and life eternal? Maybe you're here this morning and think you too are beyond saving. That the things you have done, the sin and its consequences are too weighty for you. Maybe you need to be reminded that there's no sin too big, no burden too heavy that Jesus can't carry. That he didn't on his back. He is the resurrection and the life. Go to him and find that healing, that restoration, that truth that you are looking for. This brings us to our second point. So we've seen that Jesus, uh, we must look to him in our need, his ministry. And we have seen that he cares for us in a ministry of truth and he gives us now a ministry of tears. So after Jesus had ministered to to Martha, we see in verse 28 that he asked her to send Mary to him. So Mary had stayed behind, not because she didn't want to see Jesus, but because it was Jewish custom to mourn and sit shiva for seven days after a death. So she was doing that with all the people that were mourning with her family. So she goes and sees him. And I'm still astounded at the way that this story plays out. Mary says the exact same thing to Jesus that Martha did. But her posture and his response were different. And though I find this shocking, maybe we shouldn't. Mary's need wasn't the same as Martha's. They were different people. Neither was right, neither was wrong. He he ministered to their need according to exactly what they needed at the time and who they were. And verse 32 says, Now when Mary came to Jesus um, and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. Martha came to Jesus needing to be reminded of what was true. What was true about him and what was true about her and Lazarus. But Mary, falling at his feet in an act of humility and devotion and worship, weeping, needs something different. She doesn't need Jesus to remind her what is true of her grief. She needs him to enter into her grief with her. And we see Jesus move towards her in a ministry, not of truth, but of tears. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. She moves him. In a sense, he is speechless here. He doesn't respond to her immediately. This means that her grief, her tears had such an effect on him that the only course of action was to meet her in that place. And so after being deeply moved and troubled in spirit, he says this in verse 34. All he says is, where have you laid him? And he wept as they said, come and see. He wept the same tears for Lazarus that Mary did. And in that moment, his tears ministered to her in ways that nothing else would. In the same way Jesus ministers to us in our time of need, in in our own tears. Many of us this morning are in a place where we don't need to be reminded of what is true, but we need someone to meet us in our tears. There are some of us this morning that are unable even to believe the things that are true about us, and we need someone instead to meet us in our tears what I love about what Jesus does in this moment is that he puts his humanity on full display. This is the God of the universe who had just told Martha that he was the resurrection and the life. He just told her that he had power over all of life and death. He said that I am in my person the resurrection. This is the power that this man has. And yet to Mary, he wept. What we know as Christians is that the grief that he took on for Mary, he took on for us. He took our grief and our sins and our brokenness on his back and he weeps for us in that. He weeps with us in the consequences of our sin and he enters into that brokenness so that we can have life. And we can do that for one another. Sometimes the best thing we can do for someone in need is to sit with them in their grief. A ministry of tears doesn't mean you have to be hyper-emotional or cry all the time. That's just not how some of us are wired. But a ministry of tears does mean that we can and have to enter into one another's grief in times of need and brokenness. Sometimes the holiest thing you can do is to sit with someone while they're going through a difficult time. It's just to sit with them and listen. Some of you are in times of need and um, this is how I'm more wired. I don't allow people into that place with me because I don't even let them know I'm there. We need to learn from Mary if we're wired that way. Who fell prostrate before Jesus' feet in worship. Allowing him in And that humility and that brokenness and allowed herself to be ministered to. Some of you need to let Jesus in and let others in to minister to you in your tears. And this brings us to our final point. So we've seen that we must look to the ministry of Jesus in our times of need. He gives us a ministry of truth, a ministry of tears, and now we're going to see a ministry of life. So John ends this uh, section depicting the ministry of Jesus with this uh, story very purposefully. He does it uh, because there's perhaps no more stories in the book of John that depict who Jesus is and what he came to do than this one. And the story ends dramatically, foreshadowing and alluding to the dramatic ending of Jesus' own life. Verse 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb, and uh, it was a cave and a stone lay across it. Um, One thing that... uh, I want us to notice here is this word deeply moved is actually the same word that Jesus used to describe uh, or that John used to describe Jesus' state above. It was translated troubled a second ago. And many commentators have noted that troubled and deeply moved are the lightest possible translation of this word. The word in the Greek actually is better translated to bellowing with anger. When Jesus sees Mary's tears and he goes to the tomb, he is furious, he's irate, bellowing with anger. And the question is, what is making him so upset? We know he's not angry at any of the characters, Mary or Martha, when we see him engage them in love. He's not angry with Lazarus who, though no fault of his own, had died. He's not angry even with the unbelieving Jews or the Pharisees perhaps that would plot to kill him. You see, he's raging against death. He's bellowing with anger against the unnatural state that is death and the evil and the sin that have caused it. These are things that are not his fault, but they're the result of sin. and, And he hates all that sin has caused so he asked them to take away the stone and he prays this to his heavenly father who he knows is raging against all that death tears apart too and he says this in verse 33 he cried out with a loud voice lazarus come out and he came out and jesus said unbind him and let him go Jesus defeated death for Lazarus' sake. Lazarus, who was dead for four days, so much so that Martha mentions that his body would be rotten, his body in bandages from being buried. That's how far dead he was. Jesus brought him to life. This is a ministry of life. I think John puts this passage at the very end of Jesus' ministry on earth because I think the most important ministry that Jesus gives us is, is the ministry of life. Here's what's so confounding about the ministry of life, though. It's only found in death. Jesus, who was bellowing with anger against the injustice that death is, the sin and evil that caused it, knew that the only way that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, but also you and me and the history of the, all the people of the world would find life is if we embrace death. It's only in death do we find life. And he knew this for Lazarus. Do you know that of all the signs, all the miracles, all the statements of deity, all the healings in the entire book of John, it was this sign, it was this raising a Lazarus from the dead that the leaders of the Jews finally decided to kill him. This was it. In verse 53, which is not in our bulletin, it says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It was this act, this raising of the dead, this ministry of life that put the nail in the coffin of Jesus Christ. He knew, even before he did it, that if he raised Lazarus from the dead, they would kill him. They would kill him. That the only way to bring Lazarus out of the tomb was for him to willingly put himself in the tomb. That the only way to bring us out of death was for Jesus to go to the cross for us in the same way. Keller puts it this way. If Jesus had shown up with a sword to destroy all evil, we would all be destroyed. Because the evil is in us. But he didn't come with a sword, but with nails In his hands. He didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. And just as he knew that bringing Lazarus out of the grave. Signified his doom. He also felt the weight of eternal judgment coming down on him. And yet. Knowing that that was coming. He said Lazarus come out. And even with the weight of eternal judgment on him. He says to me. And he says to you come out of the tomb. This is the ministry of life. Though we were dead, Jesus gives us life. Though we were four days dead and rotting, Jesus died so that that we could live. He went to the cross so that we could have life. And then the truth and hope of the gospel is this. The same power that raised Lazarus, that he walked out of the tomb, Jesus, to walked out of the tomb showing that he was the resurrection and the life in his person to him be the glory um my buddy just the other day was we were were texting and um he reminded me how good that baklava was at the wedding apparently it was so good that um his name's Bobby, he, uh, he was shoving sticky pieces of it into his pockets so that after the wedding he could, uh, he could have more. But I think what's interesting is that um, this whole story with Yaya and Effie and Andrea and I is all about meeting needs. We wanted a Greek piece in our wedding and that was ministered to us by Yaya. Yaya needed help to do that and Effie meets her there and ministers to her. In a way, us incorporating the Greek into our wedding was us ministering to them. But Really, it's an amazing story of these women caring for each other's needs according to what they needed to their personalities and to their characters. And some of you, in the same way, You want to care for others' needs too. Some of you also need that. All of us tend to be more prone to and find weeping with those who weep easy. Some of us tend to be truth tellers and have no problem reminding people what is true. But I want to end this with this. Only Jesus Christ is both. Only Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He isn't just our wonderful counselor. He is the truth come in tears. He is truth incarnate in tears. And we need that. And though we will fail to meet each other's needs appropriately, we will fail to bring others into our needs, we know that we have a God who always moves perfectly towards us in truth and in tears so that we may have life eternal in him. In our times of need, in our times of brokenness and darkness, that is our hope. And that is the hope of the gospel. Amen.